When many of us hear that someone has lost a loved one, we realize that someone dear to them must have passed away. But what happens when you literally lose someone? When one day they just vanish without a trace? Home DNA kits are all the rage these days, right? 23andMe, Ancestry.com are just a few of the brands out there available to people looking to explore their heritage or find long-lost relatives. Well, detectives have recently found another use for these kits, and that is using their data to solve crimes, such as the case in the Sophie Sergi murder from 1993, which I am going to tell you about in this week's episode. From time to time, during the How Did We Miss That podcast, we may talk about details of crimes that some may find triggering or disturbing. Listener discretion is highly advised. Miss that. Okay, hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of How Did We Miss That? I'm Christine. And I'm John. I'm back. Yay! It was nice having Liz though last week. Yes. She did thank a great you, job. Thank you, Liz. It's a good story. Yeah, we need to find uh, either her again or more fill-in people for me because I don't think the audience likes me. Wow, she had a really good time and she said anytime. She'd yeah, love she to come did back. very well. It was a pleasure to edit and all those things. So thank you, Liz. Thank you. And I actually have a quick little corrections thing I need to do from last week's episode. I feel really stupid. Yeah. But the name of Mary was Mary K. Wine. And I kept saying car wine. Eh. And I'm really not sure why. It's spelled exactly the right way. And I said it right one time. So I'm not really sure why I did that. But who knows why I do the things I do. But I did. And I'm sorry. So I would like to apologize and redact the car wine and add the K wine in there. Okay. Well, I've got an interesting story for you. Um, My sources for the story are a documentary by Explore It With Us. Also, thecharlieproject.org, which if you don't know about The Charlie Project, I suggest that you go check out the website. It's basically filled with cold case missing people. Hmm. So it's actually really interesting. Yeah. Um, and I also got more information from a strangeoutdoors.com article from October 31st of 2017. Hey, real quick. Yeah. We should share with the audience we have a new executive producer of all of our shows we do flapjack the baby corgi we re- can't really control what he's doing chewing and all that right. other stuff so if you he's hear new some i think i mentioned it last week errant dog noises in the background just like last week we apologize what are you gonna do we don't have a studio or anything this you get what you get yeah yeah all right i just wanted to put that out there just in case all right well this is the story of the disappearance of michael madden Michael Madden's friends were so excited to get together for a fun camping trip, but when they arrived at his campsite that day, he was gone with absolutely no indication as to where or how he had gone. So, like we always do, I would like to transport you back to 1996, when the Macarena was the biggest hit on the radio and Pokemon had just made its way into the world. This podcaster was a junior in high school. Nice. Man. I was 13? It seems so long ago. Yeah. I mean, I remember when Pokemon (laughs) became really big. My 
baby brother who's been on the show. Yeah. He was Pikachu that year for Halloween. So I it's 25 that. years ago. Yeah. Oh, my God. All right. Anyway. Anyway, 20-year-old Michael Madden was described as being very kind and gentle. He was goofy and playful and always put a smile on the faces of the ones around him. He was very introverted and liked to keep to himself. He had very few really close friends. And that was really it. That's all he kind of hung out with. I can relate to that. Yeah, me too. I don't have like huge group of friends. I like to stick to a few really good ones, right? Yeah. He was very comfortable being by himself. Michael had always loved the outdoors. And in fact, he was studying wildlife biology at Humboldt University in California. Hmm. Mm-hmm. His goal was actually to join the U.S. Forest Service. Oh. Yes. That's a good school to go to for that. I know. Yeah. He and his dad, Larry, took so many camping trips together through the years that it did not seem at all strange to anyone when Michael decided he wanted to go on a camping trip alone. One of their favorite spots was Sandbar Flat in Sonora, California. So it was a very familiar place to him. On August 10th of 1996, at around 5 a.m., Michael packed everything he would need for the trip, including his dog, Matilda, into his Chevy Cavalier and left his mother a note about his plans and set off on his trip. We really don't know a lot about what went on next, but this is where his friends come into the story. It's August 12th now, so Michael's been camping for about two days. And all the friends had been on a fishing trip. And then they kind of decided they were going to go to another friend's house to party, to like have a little party. Right? Sounds fun. Yeah. Seems like what uh, that age group does. Yeah. yeah. Like you do, right? Normal. Yeah. They knew that um, there was going to be like a meteor shower that night. Oh. So they decided they were going to take a spontaneous trip out to the mountains to check it out. Yeah. They knew that Michael's campsite was going to be on the way. So they decided they were going to stop by and surprise him. So the four friends, it was two guys and two girls. They said they arrived at the campsite around two in the morning to find all of Michael's gear, the campsite dark, but no Michael or Matilda. Hmm. So it seemed like such a strange time for the two to be gone. It's two in the morning. Yeah. He knows he's not like fishing or anything. It's pretty early. Right. They looked around a while and then suddenly a man enters the campsite from the dark forest pointing a gun at them. Oh boy. And shouting, asking what they were doing there. When they told him that they were there to see their friend, he said that Michael had never mentioned that anyone was coming, that he had already left. Hmm. Then he just casually mentions that he saw something with three eyeballs over there on the other side of the camp. <laughs> what? What? Okay. We already did the weird paranormal and yeah. uh, alien episode. Right. <laughs> so he's like, oh, he's already gone. He didn't you know, say he was coming. Oh, but there's something with three eyeballs over there. Well, this is Humboldt. There's a lot of weed up there. Weird. Oh, right. Well, yeah. we'll get to that in just a moment. <laughs> yeah. Well, he finally introduced himself as Joseph Tyne. And he kept calling Michael Mikey. Mm. And all his friends agreed that that was really weird because he never used that as a nickname. That was never something he ever called himself. Yeah. So they kind of began to get a little uncomfortable with this new stranger because he's just standing there. He's like talking to himself. Sometimes he would like (laughs) talk to the bushes and then he would talk to himself. And it was just really weird. But as if it wasn't uncomfortable enough, he kept cocking his 45 automatic pistol over and over again. Yeah, that is just kept doing it. Yeah. Is it... It would be like opening and closing. Is that what it's called? Like he's. Well, that's what I was trying to wonder if 
I, I mean, it depends on the gun, but you can, like, if it has the thumb pull, mm-hmm. but a lot of semi-automatics don't have that. It's the pulling of the hammer back, like you've seen me do with mine, mm-hmm. but you can only really do that once until you fire it, especially so, if it's loaded. From what I could tell from the story, it sounded like it was a, what are those things called where you, they're round and you put the bullets in and they spin? That's a revolver. Well, that's what it sounded like, but they said it was a forty-five automatic, so I don't know. Well, there is no... Well, first, I, I mean, I'm not here to correct you. Uh, that's what I, I got from my sources. I, I got you. The, there, for the audience's sake, there is no automatic pistol. They're semi-automatic okay. or revolver. All right. However, some revolvers don't have the little thumb deal. Mm-hmm. Like, mine doesn't have that. You can just pull the trigger till you're out of bullets. But a semi-automatic pistol like my other gun... You have to pull the hammer back that puts a round in the chamber. If you were to pull that back again, it's going to pop the round out each time. So, mm. like I said, unless it wasn't loaded, you kind of can't really do that. Now, you can if it has the thumb thingy. A Beretta forty-five semi-automatic would have the thumb thingy. And you could just click and then hit a button and push it back up and click. And you could keep hmm. doing that. Okay. So, well, whatever he was doing, yeah, he whatever. was doing it for the six hours that he was with them. God, that's annoying. At the campsite. Yeah. While they waited for Michael. Maybe he's just practicing. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. So like I said, they were waiting for Michael for about six hours, but he never returned. So the friends decided it was time to report him missing and to get some help to find him. For four days, search and rescue looked for Michael and they found absolutely nothing until on the fourth day, Matilda finally returned to the camp. Waltzing Matilda. Yes. She was dehydrated. She was exhausted, obviously, like you would expect. But what was really weird was they noticed she didn't have any like sores on the bottom of her feet or anything like on her fur to indicate that she was like in brush or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And you would think that a dog wandering around for four days in the mountains would have something on the bottoms of their feet or their fur. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. I mean. I always say like dogs at their core are animals, so they adapt and overcome. But I mean, I guess. You know, our little princess and prince of dogs that just live in the house, their paws would be scuffed. Probably, you're right. So, I don't know. Right. It depends on, you know, Matilda's upbringing, I guess. Yeah. Well, anyway, that was just something that the family and friends thought was really strange. Yeah. Um, They actually tried to get Matilda to lead them to Michael, but she couldn't do it. And the trail finally went cold and local authorities were baffled as to where Michael had gone. Yeah. Come on, Matilda. Oh, don't get mad at Matilda. She was probably so scared. <laughs> Do you think Flapjack could lead authorities to our whereabouts if we were lost? Nope. No, neither could He would could just Lucille. lay there and ask him to rub <laughs> his belly and move yeah. on. Lucille would just growl and bark at them. Yeah, probably. Yeah. All right, so let's talk about some of the theories and the investigation into this. So one theory was that Larry, who's Michael's father, may have had something to do with it. In fact, police felt strongly that he was the main suspect at first. Hmm. So they kind of didn't investigate as much because they were like we've got our guy like right away which was weird yeah i hate it when they do that however he passed a polygraph test with flying colors but friends of the family say that he wasn't really trustworthy they actually called him a con man um he they also said he wasn't much of a father to michael like which is weird because they went on camping trips a lot so you'd think they'd be close but i don't know i guess yeah haven't we uncovered on the show before that polygraph doesn't really mean much Right. Yeah. I mean, there are ways to pass it without, Yes. you know, obviously telling lies. There's ways to do it. Right, so. right. Right. Well, he actually points the fingers at the police and their investigation. He doesn't understand why search dogs were never used. 
or why they did not check Matilda's stomach to see if anyone had fed her or what she had eaten. He feels like a lot of questions could have been answered by this. And he doesn't understand why they called off the search when Matilda returned. I don't know. I feel like search dogs is kind of like an obvious thing. Right? Yeah, I that don't seems understand like, like why. the Ma- first thing I would do. Yeah, why does Matilda returning just call off the search for the human? Yeah, I don't know. It like, was they had to have either be missing or dead together for them to follow through on this. I, know, I don't get so it. It was just kind of a weird. I don't know why they made that decision. Like it's just very strange. Yeah, it's lazy. That seems like the first thing I would do if I was investigating yeah. someone missing is I'd get search dogs. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, it turns out that that was not the only weird call that the investigators made in this case. They left Michael's car at the campsite for over four days Mm. after his disappearance, and they didn't even investigate it. They didn't look in it. They didn't fingerprint it. They did nothing. I'm sorry. What agency is this? Is this the local police? So it's Modesto police. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. They also had a Tuolumne Sheriff's Department as well. Okay. And that's up near Yosemite. Oh, yes. Tuolumne Meadows. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so like I said, they didn't even investigate the car, but apparently some of Michael's friends actually went into the car and took things out of it. Like you do? Like, yeah. Like, I don't know why. They said they were looking for firewood, but I mean, your <laughs> friend's missing. Why are you looking for firewood? I feel like that would um, present itself without having to go through the car. I mean, it's wood right. and it's large. But so aside <laughs> from that being really strange, yeah. it obviously taints the crime scene, right? Yes. I mean, and I got to wonder like what else they messed with. Yes. That probably could have been really helpful. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Yeah. They also refused to listen to the theories of Michael's closest friends. They told them not to play detective and to stay out of it. Oh, yeah. Almost as if they didn't want this to be solved. Hmm. Apparently, a local farmer even offered them horses. And they refused it so that they could go search in the woods and they just refused the help. And then during the search efforts, they focused only on the specified trails and would not go beyond them. They told the people that were helping them to search that it was too dangerous for them to pass the trail. But like these people were forest service experts. And so was Michael. Like He was really familiar with that area. So wouldn't you think he would go off the trail? Uh, yeah i mean i i I would think i don't know so i'm thinking i'm like i'm hiking right and i'm gonna stay on the trail because i'm not an expert at hiking at all right but i feel like if i'm gonna get hurt or if i'm gonna get lost or stuck it's off the trail oh yeah for sure especially if you are on the trail good at it yeah he's not lost on the trail you guys (laughs) well if you're on a good enough trail hiking is simply walking so i mean right of course you could turn an ankle on a rock or something but well, exactly. Per, but to I illustrate feel your like, point, if yeah. you're going to get massively hurt, it will definitely be off the trail. Yeah. Right. Well, and then the point that they said it's too dangerous to be off the trail. Okay. So yeah. don't you think you should check there? Yeah. Obviously, it's dangerous, my yeah. friends. So it's just a little weird. <laughs> anyway, so there were other things that just didn't have any explanation. The Rangers actually told Michael's friends not to tell Michael's mother. They wanted to call her and tell her that he's missing, but they told them not to call her. They said because if in, in case he ran away, they didn't want her to be upset. Mm. But then okay. they turn around and immediately call his father. Hmm. So they tell the friends not to call the mother, but they go call the father who's in Oregon. So he's like not even there. He, yes. Depending on what part of Oregon, he might be close. It's possible, but you still know, he's just not there. Humboldt's the way the F up there. 
Right. But the point is he wasn't there. Yeah. So it was like, why would you call him and not the mom that's there? She lives there. He lives with her. I'm truly not trying to blow holes in your point here. No, it's but fine. I, I mean, I could see someone doing that, though, just playing devil's advocate, like maybe mom's fragile, dad can handle it better whether he's there or not. We're going to alert him and let him deliver the message to mom. Maybe that's what they were thinking. I know this is a crime show, so that's not what they were thinking, but <laughs> I'm just, like I said, playing devil's advocate. That, that That is something that would go through my mind in this scenario. So Because I'll call dad, not mom. Right. So here's what I'm thinking. I get lost in the woods, right? And my friends are trying to find me. And instead of calling you, who lives here, they call my parents in California. Well, what the heck are they going to do? They're far away. What Wouldn't you call the people that are the closest to come and help? I know that's, well, that's the only thing I'm thinking. Yeah, I hear what you're I saying. I get what you're I'm, saying. Yeah. That makes sense. Maybe they didn't really didn't want to. It's just like you when know, your alert mom her, has but, not called you about a sick family member because she knows you'll be a train wreck. You know what I mean? Like, well, you, yeah, but in that case, I can't help in any way. No, I know. So I, I it's like, I'm just. That's I'm, what I'm saying. My mom's not going to call me because I can't help. Yeah, I'm taking the that's angle that. <laughs> yeah, I, I understand. I, I get what you're saying. Yeah. I also get what I'm saying. I know they both <laughs> they both make sense. And if we're going to be, you know, the positive people we try to be, let's err on the side of goodness and think that they really didn't want to scare her. Yeah. So we'll yeah. we'll go with that. But it was still just a bit weird that they specifically said not to tell her yeah, anyway i hear you oh oh but i forgot to also tell you they told the friends not to tell her but they also told them they need to all call their parents <laughs> okay i forgot that part yeah yeah so they all made them call their parents to let them know something's, what was going on something strange is afoot just, yeah it's just really weird yeah. anyway so online communities because you know they always get involved in these things oh yeah they wondered about a known serial killer that was active in Yosemite in the late 90s. His name was Carrie Stainer. <laughs> and it actually turns out that his stomping ground, if you will, like I don't really know what to call it, was coincidentally very, very close to Sandbar Flats. But this is the only similarity that anyone has been able to match with Michael's case. I also heard a theory of there was two, I think it was brothers. I'm not sure. On their way? That were, yes, they were on their way. One was wearing blue and the other was gray. Yeah. Anyway, um, they would capture hikers and throw them down a well. Oh, my. So people were thinking maybe that was it. They were like in that area kind of. So they thought maybe it was them, but they haven't found any evidence to like substantiate those theories at all. But anyway, that was an interesting take. But I want to talk about my personal thoughts on this i want to talk about joseph tyne okay this funky guy that just shows up at the campsite yeah so he was just really weird like the gun thing and the weird nickname and some of the friends reported that they believed he was wearing a pair of michael's boots <laughs> yeah that's a key detail so, right yeah so despite all of this though some of michael's family still think that he had nothing to do with it his dad actually thinks he's completely innocent because apparently his story seemed really credible. His dates and times were all super solid. Like, I guess there was a point when he had mentioned that Michael left the camp to go call someone. And he said it was like at this time on this day. And the person he called was his friend, Josh. Hmm. And Josh had said, oh, you know, without knowing that Joseph said this. He said, oh, I talked to him on, I think he said Tuesday morning at such and such time. 
Well, it ended up that it was actually Monday mm. and Joseph said Monday hmm. okay. at that time. So he yeah. had it like exactly right. So yeah. weird. there was that. He was also really cooperative with the police. So he like really quickly fell off the suspect list, hmm. which still, I don't know. Anyway, we'll, let's get into some other stuff here. So I think I mentioned he was also polygraph tested and his polygraph test showed no signs of deception. But like we know, doesn't always ring true. Yeah. Pardon the pun on that one. <laughs> yeah. So though the close friends believe that he is the one that's responsible for Michael's disappearance, a childhood friend, Manuel Ferreira, was actually the one to pick Joseph out of the lineup as the creepy guy that was at the campsite. He believes that Joseph was making meth mm. and that Michael happened upon his spot. So he killed him and disposed of the body. So the reason he believes this is because when they had stumbled upon the site and he kind of like jumps out of the bushes, they noticed off to the side, there was like a screen mm-hmm. and like a couple other things. I can't remember what they mentioned, but when one of them mentioned them to their brother that was in jail for meth they're like that's absolutely what he was doing Hmm. that that's how you cook it or whatever so that was something that they started to believe was what he was doing out there in the woods was he was cooking meth out there and they think that michael stumbled upon it made him upset somehow so he decided to kill him and dispose of the body they said that it was absolutely in michael's character to have confronted him about hurting the environment in some way. He was so into the environment and wildlife and keeping things safe and natural. And so he absolutely would have gone to him and said like, this isn't right. You shouldn't be doing this and kind of would have confronted him about it. So Manuel thinks this might be what happened, that Joseph is responsible for it. And that this is why. Hmm. Interesting. It's a, um, sounds kind of primitive and simple for meth, but, you know, just based on what I've right. seen in Breaking Bad, they, they needed, a, and that was pretty accurate. So I've heard. So like, they needed a lot more equipment, right? And I think he had know. it. He just was at Michael's campsite, not his own. Well, I had a different theory, and it's completely irrelevant. But maybe he was making hash or marijuana like oil. It's possible. Similar process, and marijuana is a big deal up there. Yeah, it's possible. The yes. audience has got to be really wondering about me right now. I know all about guns <laughs> and how to make drugs. Hey, there you go. You just have some eclectic knowledge. I do, yeah. All right. Well, Joseph's account, while I told you it was solid and it didn't change, it was also a little weird. He said that he and Michael struck up a conversation as casual acquaintances, and they were even borrowing each other's things from their campsites. Like, that's what I do when I'm camping. I just, like, talk to someone and start borrowing their things. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. He's only been there for two days. I sound like such a point shitter tonight, but that happened to me with some German hikers out of nowhere in Mammoth one time when I was (laughs) staying by myself. But this just doesn't... They shared a campsite with me and we shared things in the campsite. Okay, but remember that I told you, he's an introvert. I know, I know. He's not a friendly person. Okay, whatever. (laughs) All right. Well, the friends were quick to mention that... Even after his disappearance, so even after they realized that Michael was gone, Joseph still continued to borrow his things and eat his food. Yeah, that's not right. So Michael's been gone for like 10 hours at this point, and Joseph's like eating his food and drinking all his drinks. 
And I, I mean, that kind of seems like he thinks he's not coming back, right? Exactly. I mean, wouldn't you like, oh my gosh, let's get food ready and everything. When he comes back, he's going to be so hungry. But no, he's like eating all his stuff. Like all of it. How do you spell tine? Exactly how it sounds. T-I-N-E. Okay. Why? I'm looking him up. I want to see a picture of this crazy guy. If there is a picture. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, one thing that Manuel, Michael's closest friend, was really interested in were the boots that Joseph was wearing. Remember I told you they said that they looked like a pair that Michael had had? Yes. So he actually went to the police and asked them to check the DNA on the boots. What he wanted them to do was to find out if Michael's DNA was on those boots in any way. Because if it was, then clearly those were his. And I mean, I think that's enough to bring him in. Yeah. You know, like why are you taking someone's shoes? So like walking around in a dead guy's shoes, like that doesn't seem right to me. So they actually did collect DNA from the boots. But back in 1996, this technology was still not as prominently used as they do today. They didn't know like how important that really was at that point. Yeah. But now, you know, obviously things are a lot more technologically advanced. Mm -hmm. And the friends are still like to this day, urging police to check the boots for Michael's DNA to see if they actually were his. But as of now, they haven't tested them. So they basically said they need three things in order to like really definitively say that these are his. So they would need a relative of Michael's, which they have. They have his half brother. Um, They would need DNA from the boots, which they do have as well. And then they would need like DNA from anybody that was in that area at the time. How do you get DNA from the boots? Oh, skin cells falling off. Okay. Hairs. Yeah. Okay. Stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. So like I said, they haven't done any testing. They keep telling them like, stop playing detective. Yeah. And they won't even try. Like, they won't even test these theories out. Yeah. So, it's just really weird. Both of Michael's parents died not knowing what happened to their son. And friends and family just want to finally put Michael to rest. There have been no arrests in this case, and it remains unsolved. Wow. And, you know, this this Joey Tyne guy, Joseph Tyne. Yeah. He's not even a suspect or something because nope. I Google and there's no image search. He doesn't even come up in Google. Nope. Is he still alive? Do you know? As far as I know, um, it's been what, 24 years, something like that. Twenty? How many years? 26? 20, 25. 25. Yeah. I was right in between. <laughs> yeah, right there. You're close. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it's been 25 years. He was 20 at the time. So, Michael would be 45 if he was still alive. So, I mean, I can imagine that Joseph Tyne's probably like in his 50s, 40s or 50s. Hmm. Yeah, there was no real pictures. I mean, there's it's a fairly common name so there were some other things that probably weren't him but i couldn't find him lots of pictures of, of michael, michael showed yeah. Up. yeah he looks like such a sweet innocent kid i know and he really was apparently like based on what his family and friends have to say about him it sounds like he was a really great guy he looks a little gullible so maybe he fell for yeah. being lured into the woods or something i don't know right oh i did also forget to mention there was another theory out there um one that his mother actually believed he was actually in love with the sister of his mm. best friend, Josh. Her name was Krista. Okay. And she did not feel the same. Um, she also actually had a really controlling boyfriend. So it's either believed that, A, he was so depressed and upset that he decided to end his life, which everyone disagrees with 
wholeheartedly. They don't think he would ever do that. His mother feels like that might be the case, which I don't know. I give a little merit to that because, you know, mothers are pretty close to their kids. So I don't know. Yeah. Um, they also think that maybe Paul, which was Krista's boyfriend, might have had something to do with it, like trying to get him out of the picture because Krista was very like flirty with him and she would like use the fact that he really liked her hmm. to her advantage. Yeah, yeah. Um, and all three of them worked together. Well, there's a lot so, of leads out there. I can't believe this thing is still... The police are just not... They just don't care. Well, and then get this. So there's a super close family friend. Her name's Helen. And Michael actually called her... Mommy number two. Mm. Um, she was really close with his mother. She she was always over there with him. She basically watched him grow up. Well, she moved to Oregon. And one night she's at a bingo hall and in walks Joseph Tyne. Hmm. And she said like at first she didn't quite know who he was. But as she's striking up a conversation with the people around the table, they start talking about Modesto. They said they were from Modesto and she said, oh my gosh, I am too. And I guess their conversation carried over and he walked over and said, oh, I'm from Modesto. Hmm. And so she was like, oh, where are you from? And they start having a conversation and she knew at that point that that's who it was now. So she started like, oh, do you know anything about the disappearance of Michael Madden? And he's like, I don't know who that kid is. I don't know what that is. And she's like, have you ever been to Sandbar Flat? And he's like, no, I don't even know where that is. Mm. And so he kind of like refused. But then she said as the night went on and they were playing bingo, she said he like was giving up all kinds of information about himself, saying his mom couldn't come because she was sick. And like just kind of talking about things. And all of a sudden he mentioned a boy that was murdered Ah. like down the street from him. And she said that what was weird about it was that he seemed really excited to talk about it. Hmm. So that was an interesting, like, part of the story. But I also wonder how much she just really wanted to catch him in something. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes when you're looking for something, you'll see it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, so he um, has since been arrested a bunch of times for drugs and yeah. meth. And uh, yeah. Wow, but, it's very interesting. And mm-hmm. it's uh, disappointing how the police just kind of give up you it makes me right. wonder how often that happens that it's just some random murder in the forest and you know we don't even hear about it potentially depending on geographically where you're at or what else is going on in the news and i know now oh, we have no leads all right see ya i mean i can't imagine if that was someone in my family and we're just supposed to let it go well that's what i'm like his family and friends are still working on this yeah. they're still trying so hard to get this thing solved. I can't imagine how they must be feeling when the police tell them like, Oh mm, no, we're not going to look into that at all. Yeah. Even though it's a plausible explanation, we're not even going to try. Crazy. So, yeah. Well, similar situation in mine has to do with DNA. Like I mentioned in the beginning and, um, you know, cops in a small town, I guess not kind of doing their due diligence. Oh, wow. Very similar. And it's from 1993. Oh, look at that. The 90s. And now, like literally now, going on as we speak. Okay. My sources are fm.kuac.org, a pretty cool website for all you true crime dorks out there, defrostingcoldcases.com. Oh, that's a cool name. name. Get it? (laughs) Um, The Anchorage Daily News and Down East Magazine. You missed my pun. You completely... 
glazed over it. I'm sorry. I'm in the zone here. I'm sorry. What did you say? Say it again. I said that's a really cool name. Oh, wow. See? Should I hit the button? No. Okay. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. Are you sure? Yeah. I, I could. Mm-mm. All right. So this week, I'm not doing any conspiracies, and I'm playing on your team. team I like it. I called it Team Murder in my write-up here. Team Murder. Yeah, and I, I want to tell you about a once cold case from 1993 that has recently been thawed. See what I did there? Love it. Good stuff, right? Mm-hmm. I was really inspired by this defrosting cold cases that That's I awesome. started writing puns. Um, this is the story of Sophie Sergi and her recently arrested suspected killer. His name is Stephen H. Downs mm. from Maine, right here in Maine. Oh, is that where the murder was, or he's just the from The murder was in Anchorage, Alaska. Oh, Lord. Okay, that's far yeah. away. <laughs> he decided to go to school as far away as possible. This happened back yeah, I'm in not sure. you can get much 1993 better. when they were both in college. So first, I'm going to take you back in time and tell you about Sophie Sergi. She was born and raised in a tiny village called Pitkas Point, I think I'm saying that right, on the lower Yukon River, a region largely inhabited by Alaska's indigenous Yupik people. I'm probably not saying, I'm sorry, Native no, Americans, probably I'm probably screwing right. this up. She enrolled at the University of Alaska on scholarships, intending to major in oceanography. When her money ran a little low in her sophomore year, she took a leave of absence from school, and she returned um, back to her hometown to be a teaching assistant at a school there, a private school. Mm, okay. She did return to uh, Fairbanks, Alaska. I'm sorry, Fairbanks. I said Anchorage, but Fairbanks, Alaska, which mm, is where the okay. university is. In the spring of 1993 for a scheduled orthodontist visit, she spent two days on campus bunking with a friend from her hometown who also went to the same school. I guess there's not too many college choices in Alaska, so probably yeah, I everybody mean, I can't imagine goes that there. there. Are. <laughs> um, a little after midnight on April 26th, 1993, she left her friend's dorm room to go smoke a cigarette. About 14 hours later, her body was discovered in a bathtub by janitors cleaning one of the dorm's shared bathroom areas. Oh, man. Her pants and underwear were lowered and her sweater and bra had been lifted. Okay. Okay. So I'm assuming she was sexually assaulted. Yes. They were thinking rape and then murder at first. Well, they're still thinking that, but... Initial investigations found that she had been raped before she was killed. Look at that. You're a mind reader. Mm-hmm. The official cause of death was said to be a gunshot wound to the back of the head by a 22 caliber. Oh, my gosh. That's like a mafia move. Isn't that? Yeah, that's like execution style, well, man. It's kind of the only way you can kill somebody with a 22 because it's such a tiny bullet. Like You have to put it point blank and in an area where it's going to hit the brain right away. Like I don't even think it'll reach your heart okay. if you shot them in the chest. It's such wow. a small bullet. It'll get stopped along the way. And we've had a couple cases, I think, where it was a twenty-two caliber. Mm-hmm. You've had a few of those. So it's a popular gun. I don't know if it's easy to, you know, get a hold of or what, but... Um, Is it small? I, I'm not familiar with a twenty-two revolver as much as I am a rifle. I mean, and it's a rifle size, but I think ammo is easy to come by. They're easy to buy because it's not like an assault weapon or anything because it's such a small round. So I think it's just easier to get. Okay. Well, I was just thinking if it's smaller, it might not be as intimidating for people. So yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's like the fir- like the go to for the beginners. I guess I don't know. Yeah, it is easy to shoot. There's not going to be any kickback or anything like that. It's no, okay. Yeah, maybe. So, like I said, the official cause of death was that gunshot. However, investigators also determined that she had been stabbed in the cheek and the eye, struck with a blunt instrument, gagged with a ligature. Oh my gosh! And if that wasn't enough. 
shocked with a stun gun before ultimately being shot and killed. So okay. somebody really so wanted this to person's mad. do some damage to her. During an autopsy, examiners collected biological evidence, including an undeterminate number of spermatozoa. Okay. That's just fancy medical speak for, you know, ejaculate. Right. <laughs> I don't know why it's called spermatozoa. I looked it up and that just means sperm. Why not just say sperm? Why do people got to get all fancy? Well, because they're... You know, medical examiners, they got to be scientific. I guess, yeah. So whatever term you want to use, the um, spermatozoa was taken by a swab. But at the time of Sergei's murder, the science of DNA forensics was in its infancy, like you said with your right. story. Mm-hmm. So people didn't really know how much to collect, what to do with it, what other things around the room they should collect. So they right. swab her, find the spermatozoa, and... um <laughs> You know, like like you mentioned, this was like really brand new. The OJ trial drew national attention to the role of DNA evidence, but that was kind of the first time we all heard about it. And when was that? Was that like 1995 or something? 96? Something like that. I so I believe that this. the first um, instances of DNA testing like within the FBI and things like that was, I believe, 89. Mm-hmm. But I can be completely wrong. Please don't quote me on that. But I believe that that's when it was. And so... In 93 and 96, in my case, they just didn't realize, like, how important all of this information was. Yes. How important, like, I mean, I think it just didn't occur to them that you could even get that information. Right, right. The science someone. wasn't there. Yeah. So it's it's really interesting, like, what they can do now. I'll talk about it later, but. Yeah, and the um, OJ trial, not only did it draw national attention to the process, but it also blew a lot of holes, exposed flaws in the collection and handling And it was decades more before databases and advances in testing allowed for the sophisticated analysis that they practice today. Like now, they know exactly what to do. The science is there. The machines are there. They figure it out almost immediately. Over the years, detectives pursued multiple leads in the case, but determined all were dead ends. Then in 2017, a retired Alaska state trooper by the name of Randy McFerrin was assigned to the case as part of the state's cold case investigative unit. I'm sorry, what year was that, did you say? 2017. Okay, all right. I just want to go on record and say, I feel like all the cases in Alaska are probably cold. Ha. Uh, Should I hit the button? No, don't hit the button. <laughs> you know me, I got to bring a little light to these uh, Well, heavy we have subjects. to, otherwise we would just be depressed all the time. Yeah. McFerrin had been studying, McFerrin, isn't it like Bobby McFerrin, don't worry, be happy? Spelled differently here, but right. I'm going to think so. of that now yeah. every time I say this. He had been studying case files for months when the news broke that the infamous Golden State Killer, we know about him, right? We do. I remember that. Had been identified and apprehended thanks to familial DNA analysis. Mm-hmm. He contacted Parabon Nanolabs. Oh, that's what I was going to talk about. Oh, okay. That's what I was looking at. Um, do you want to go ahead and talk about it? Oh, do you, are you not? I have a little bit. Yeah, it's a for-profit DNA technology company. Parabon's genetic genealogy division is managed by a woman named Cece Moore, mm-hmm. known for her work on several high-profile criminal cases. She's also been on a few TV shows. She's kind of famous in this field. Right. She was intrigued by the case and decided to work on it personally, mm. this Alaska case. So they've actually been doing some really great work in um, cold cases at this point in time. So it is... A for-profit organization. So a lot of cold cases are raising money in order to be, like, to ask to use these services. Right. 
So what they do, which is really, really cool, is they analyze the DNA and from that, they can tell like what color your skin might have been, mm-hmm. what color yeah. your eyes are, and they can actually do a sketch. Yeah, it's creepy. And now, of course, the sketch isn't going to be like, oh my gosh, that's you. Right. But it narrows down the pool like a ton. Oh, yeah. If you can say that this person was lighter skinned or darker skinned, I mean, you can cut your suspect pool in half. Well, we're going to find out what they were able to do here. And we will also find out that lawyers hate these people. Mm-hmm. I can imagine. Because, I mean, well, we'll get into it in a minute. Right. Um, here's a little bit about more though, that I thought was interesting. She began her career helping adoptees locate their birth parents. And she says the process for identifying a criminal suspect is remarkably similar. Most at-home DNA tests, the kind you might buy online, which we have. Even we have, done, yes. Um, where you mail your spit in or, you know, some kind of swab um, of your cheek. Companies like 23andMe and Ancestry.com are the most popular. Um, they tease the consumer's DNA and maps hundreds and thousands of positions within that individual's DNA code, drawing conclusions about ancestry by algorithmically identifying patterns. This is some real science nerd stuff here. Right. Then matching these patterns to identify um, in their huge libraries of other samples that people have sent in. Mm-hmm. Consumers can then use their genetic information to search for ancestors and relatives either in the company's proprietary database, whichever company you go with, Mm -hmm. or by posting their DNA information to third-party sites with publicly searchable databases. The most popular of these is called JED Match, Hmm. JED Match. Based on the number of identical positions between any two samples, genealogists like Moore can determine the immediacy of a relationship from parent to child to distant cousin. By building elaborate family trees, they can also refine a search for individuals of a certain age, sex, or even race or ethnicity, like you said. Mm-hmm. Crazy, because when I got my results back, it's telling me I'm all these different ethnicities, and oh, you have a cousin over here, and a cousin, people I've never heard of before. I know. I've got like all kinds of people that I'm like, what? And you know, me being a skeptic about everything, I was like, is this real or not? But um, it sounds pretty legit based on all this research so, I did for this. This is what I will say. Obviously, we know my grandfather. <laughs> we yes. know he's my grandfather. Right. But um, one of my relatives was trying to do a family tree. And because my grandfather is the oldest living, well, not anymore, unfortunately. Yeah. He Rest was the oldest living member of the family. Um, they were they asked to get his DNA to kind of start this process. And so they put it into the system. And it just so happened to be the same system that we used and sure enough, I get this, ding, your grandfather. Yeah. Like, I didn't put his name in there. There was no way that they would have possibly known. Right, right. That we're related. And they told me it's my grandfather. Yeah. So it was it's pretty a, crazy. It's pretty high tech. Well, five months after McFerrin contacted Moore, she reported back. DNA from the spermatozoa taken from Sergey's body bore a distinct resemblance to DNA submitted to an ancestry site by a woman living in Vermont. Traditional genealogical research revealed that among the woman's relatives was a nephew, a guy by the name of Stephen Downs, who in 1993 had lived in the same residential tower where Sergey's body was found. Okay, that's too much of a coincidence to be a coincidence. Right. Downs was born and raised in Auburn, Maine. He had left there in 1992 to pursue an English degree at the University of Alaska, Fairbanks. Mm Mm-hmm. 
It's unclear whether Downs was ever questioned during the initial investigation, of course, lazy cops. In 2009, investigators interviewed his college girlfriend who recalled that Downs and several friends were watching movies together at the time of the murder. Last year in 2020, during grand jury testimony, the same girlfriend qualified this statement saying she couldn't remember many specifics of the evening. That was a long time ago. Yeah. In 2010, police questioned Downs' first-year roommate, a campus security guard at the time of the murder, who allegedly assisted in securing the crime scene. According to court documents, the roommate told investigators that Downs had owned a handgun of the same caliber as a bullet recovered from the scene. Mm -hmm. However, Downs denies this. His former girlfriend and other friends also told investigators they'd never seen him with a gun. Mm. But then the girlfriend later told a grand jury that he had one. Strange. Mm -hmm. Court documents indicate the roommate was later dismissed from campus security for possessing a firearm of his own, which violated campus rules. Okay. So a gun was in the room, whether it was his or the roommate's or not, a gun was in the room. Right. And I also feel, though, that you should have taken into account that he could have gotten himself in major trouble for saying that. And so I feel like that has some merit. Yes. That holds a little weight there if you realize, like, oh, gosh, he didn't have to tell us that. Right. You know? Yeah. I don't know. So thanks to Moore's research and what she found, uh, state police approached Downs in February of 2019. His only um, criminal record at the time was an OUI received shortly after completing his undergraduate degree. You know what an OUI is? Mm -mm. It's operating under the influence. Oh, okay. Out here on the East, they call it that. Back home, they call it DUI. DUI. Yeah. In the years since... So wait, so he didn't have a scalpel and he wasn't like trying to... No. Operate on someone? (laughs) operating a motor vehicle. Just making sure. I don't know why they do that out here. It's so weird. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I I, I don't know. Okay. (laughs) I I I mean, I guess it just covers a whole... A myriad of things? Yeah, I think it covers like snowmobiles and bicycles and whatever. Right. Whereas driving, you have to be like driving a car or a boat, I guess. Other things you ride. I don't know. Whatever. (laughs) (laughs) In the years since he um, left Alaska and came home, he'd earned an MBA degree and a nursing degree and Mm -hmm. had moved back to Auburn. Isn't that kind? He was working as a nurse. Mm Mm-hmm. He was between nursing jobs and living not far from his childhood home when police brought him in for questioning and requested a cheek swab. A few days later, the Maine State Police Crime Lab determined his DNA matched the spermatozoa found during Sergei's autopsy. Nice. Downs was taken into custody, and in June of last year, he was extradited to Alaska, where he remains imprisoned, awaiting trial. He's been in prison for a long time, awaiting trial because of covid Mm-hmm. Everything's been delayed. So here's a little bit about Downs' defense team and where we're at now with this case. Are you ready? I'm ready. His team comprises of one Alaskan attorney and two from Maine, Jesse James Ian Archer. That is a mouthful. From Auburn, Maine, and a former two-term Lewiston mayor, James Hoanick. I had to spell this out phonetically because I don't want to say it wrong because it looks like something different. I'm going to go with Hoanick. Last year, Hoenick made main headlines when he publicly considered running for the Democratic nomination in the Senate race against Susan Collins. He told reporters that his role in Downs' case was too big, though, so he's Mm. not going to run. The team has filed multiple motions arguing that no evidence links Downs to Sergei's death. You know, except for the... Except for, like, legit DNA? Because, I mean, I'm sure men just leave their sperm all over the place. 
I mean, we do. That makes sense. But especially in college, it's just everywhere, sperm everywhere. I, I can imagine. But <laughs> we'll get into why they're wanting to dismiss <laughs> this in lame. a minute. That is super late. You can probably guess that it has to do that they found him through these familial DNA things, that which right. they don't hold any credit to. Like I said earlier, lawyers are mad at this. Right. But for now, these are the facts, okay? And you're a true crime junkie, you should know. Mm-hmm. No witnesses place him at the scene based on testimony. Mm-hmm. Police have established no motive for his involvement yet. And there is no other forensic evidence that implicates him, including fingerprints taken from the bathtub and the tub room door of the facility. But did they the get area. any fingerprints? It doesn't say that here. Okay. Furthermore, male DNA found on Sergei's breast couldn't be matched to the DNA of the spermatoza, Tozoa. Nor could hair samples, including pubic hair, found on her body and clothes. Defense materials point to a medical examiner's report stating no evidence of sexual assault was found either. And they note that even McFerrin, in his application for an arrest warrant, acknowledged that the presence of Down's sperm doesn't necessarily prove sexual assault. As we know, and you've talked about before, trace evidence or touch DNA is what it's called, including sperm, has been um, has also been known to spread through washing machines, bathtubs and showers, lockers, and other shared appliances and spaces. Gross. Ew. This is one reason why the amount of evidence collected and the specific location of its collection has become increasingly important in legal cases. So back then, like we mm-hmm. said, this was in its infancy. They just weren't careful about it, and so now you can blow all these holes in this theory. Right. The defense has also raised issues with the integrity of the investigation, arguing that police failed to secure the crime scene. How many times do we hear that? Mm -hmm. Before evidence could be collected and that Alaska's state lab retroactively made corrections to its early reports, in some cases years later. So I don't know if Alaska just doesn't have a lot of experience in this or what, but they kind of screwed it up a little bit. Yeah. The defense team also questions the methodology used to identify suspects by companies such as Parabon Nanolabs, pointing to a lack of oversight and peer review for genetic genealogical research and to the unknowability of error rates. Boy, that sounds familiar. Okay, but hold on. Back up. Back that up. Let's say they did make an error. It's an enormous coincidence that the person they finger just so happened to be at that place during that same exact time. Right. Of all I the mean, gin joints in all the world. Let's say you make a, a mistake. It could be some guy in, I don't know, uh, Mexico. Right. That never, ever went to Alaska. You've made a mistake. Right. Like, this is too, it, it's too tight to have been a mistake. Plus, I think, like, not even knowing he existed, there would be no yeah. premeditated reason to Nobody go after this trying, guy. Right. It's, he it's was not facts. a suspect. It doesn't sound like they even questioned him. Right. So there would be no thing where somebody would be like, oh, let's try to pin it on this guy. I don't know. This is just, I, it, unfortunately, I, I feel like they're going to lose. Yeah, I but, agree. I, um, I mean, it's just like what's going on now with the COVID vaccines. There's a lack of peer review. There's a lack of... right you know, information. So people automatically discredit it. They're trying to do the same with this company, even though science would tell you that this is legit. You know what I mean? Right. Just like what's going on now. They also cite a lack of accreditation standards for the labs conducting consumer DNA analysis and the refusal of software companies to release information about the programs they sell to law enforcement for DNA analysis. So they're trying to just find 
any reason to discredit right. what is ultimately science. Mm-hmm. In nearly two pages of pretrial motions, the defense elaborates on these and several other objections. At the heart of their arguments is a simple idea that despite the popular notion of DNA evidence as ironclad, genetic material linked to suspects via familial DNA searching is too fraught to be the sole basis for a trial and conviction. Like you said, unfortunately, they're probably going to lose because they're kind of right with that. I feel like you need a little bit more, at least one more thing, a witness, something, Mm -hmm. which they have none of at the moment. They have the gun and the bullet and the DNA, but they can't prove that gun was his. Yeah. There's no records of it or anything else. Mm -hmm. If the court agrees with the defense, it may represent a powerful legal uh, rebuttal to the increasingly common investigative tool, which we've been talking about this entire episode. The evidentiary hearing took place in February of this year due to the COVID delays Mm -hmm. where the defense attempted to get the evidence thrown out. Um, Since then, they also have presented some alternative subjects um, as late as April last month. The case is still being tried and Downs remains the primary suspect. Wow. And I didn't go into the alternative uh, suspects they brought forward because they seemed like they were really reaching. Like drawing at straws here? Yeah, there's like some guy who lives in the area who has a history of, right. you know, They always try to pull those women. people in. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, it's just a real stretch. Like they have no DNA, no sightings of him either. But some, for some reason, he's a legit suspect and this guy's not. Well, I feel like it's possible... Um, to at least get the jury to not be able to say he's not guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Right. Um, and that's the situation. You have to say beyond a reasonable doubt that mm-hmm. you agree this, yeah. whether they're guilty or not. Yeah. So I feel like that might be enough to at least get that. Unfortunately, that doesn't help in this case. But they can try him again because mm-hmm. he wasn't acquitted. Yeah. So he can be tried again, which is good. They can keep looking for evidence. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I I feel like they would need to have maybe the girlfriend or the roommate saying that he had this gun or something like that to at least make their case. Yeah, it's it's a really strange case, too, that I didn't go into, but... The girl, Sophie, was like very quiet, kept to herself. Mm -hmm. I mean, you'll see pictures when you go to do our social media posts that she didn't, you know, not attractive, nothing like the whole thing just doesn't make sense. Like why they were even connected and together to begin with. So, you know, playing devil's advocate like I often do and erring on his side a little bit, it makes no sense for him to even be there. There is nothing that puts them together. Like, well, it's not it could like have he just been be, a crime of opportunity. Right. Like he was, maybe he got in a fight with his girlfriend or was feeling particularly horny or something. I don't know. But he, they didn't know each other. They didn't hang out. They don't look like two people that would hang out together at all. She wasn't even in school at the time. She was just happened to be there for two days visiting a friend. Well, that's what I'm saying. It was obviously just. They're in different fields of study. A you know crime what I mean? of just, opportunity. Yeah, so strange. So, um it's still open, though, and the trial is ongoing in Alaska. Right, well, keep us posted if you I hear will. anything. I sure will. All right. Well, if you would like any more information or pictures about these cases, please, please make sure to follow us on social media at How Did We Miss That? I want to give a shout out for our theme composition. 
to Audio Anywhere Productions. You can find them at audioanywhereproductions.com. And until next week, keep your head up and look out for each other. Bye.